Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And Father, I do pray that you would bring revelation in the study this morning. And I ask, Lord, that you give us ears to hear. We continue to ask that we would have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. For Lord, we are still in that church age, though we are pressing ahead now. In the study, though we are reading on to the things that will take place after these things, Father, we are still here in this age, still awaiting the return of Jesus, still awaiting our calling home. And as we wait, we ask that we would have open ears, that we would pay attention, that we would not, Lord, be dissuaded from the truth, but would embrace it and live by it, whether it's easy or difficult to take. And I pray for that reception this morning, Father, by Your Spirit, Holy Spirit. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would love to start this new year off with a feel-good, ultra-positive, super-optimistic, happy new year message. I don't have one for you. I'd love to prophesy that in 2019, life on earth will only get better. It won't. I'd like to say peace and prosperity will be the new normal. They won't. What I have to tell you, and what is absolutely true, is that the God of the Bible is a God of judgment. He must be. He has to be. Abraham was right. Early on, when he said in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? God must be fair. He must be just. And He is a God who judges. And Psalm 19 verse 9 says, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. But for better or worse, God must judge. Paul said in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, people don't want to hear about wrath. 
and judgments. No doubt. No one likes to hear about discipline. And so what happens? They suppress the truth of God. The world will laugh it off. They'll explain it away. They'll ignore it completely. And if we're being completely honest with ourselves, even Christians do this. Explain away judgment. Or or minimize it. Or gloss over it because we don't want to be called judgmental. Ironically, that's what oftentimes we're called. But we don't want to be in that camp. And so we avoid those topics. And and pastors won't talk about judgment. Won't discuss wrath. Avoid Romans chapter 1 like the plague. Or Revelation 6 through 18. Because they don't want to deal with it. The thing is, if we love as we are called to love, we must be open and honest about the righteous judgments of God. We must talk about judgment. And so it's with a deeply sober and compassionate tone that Peter raises a tough question. Turn in your Bibles for a moment this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. Just back a few books to the left. 1 Peter chapter 4. If anyone understood love, or what it meant to be loved, it's Peter. As the Lord said to him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? If you love me, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Well, Peter is writing in 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll pick it up around verse 12, where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now listen, key in on this, verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's us right here. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, but he continues, if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it begins with His own people, if judgment starts there, if God's people are judged and disciplined, if we are being sanctified in this world, if we're going through fiery ordeals from time to time, if it begins here, what will be the outcome for those who don't even follow Jesus Christ? God's judgment will come to people of two conditions. First and foremost, to those who having obeyed the gospel of God are currently being disciplined and sanctified. And secondly, to those who do not obey the gospel of God. Peter asks this sobering question, what will be their outcome? I ask you this morning, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Is it you? What will be your outcome if you reject what you hear of Jesus? I put that to those of you who have friends and family and loved ones coming into 2019 
shouting Happy New Year. Will it be for them? What will it be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, the answer is spelled out in the most raw, unambiguous, and graphic details in Revelation 6-19. through That's the answer to the question. What will be the outcome of those who don't obey the gospel of God? Revelation 6-19. through Now, we finished 2018 seeing Jesus glorified. Remember that? Revelation chapter 1. John saw Jesus glorified and wrote that down. And we spent a lot of time studying the church sanctified in Revelation 2 and 3. We saw the Lord in heaven magnified in chapter 4. And finally, we ended the year with Jesus recognized in Revelation chapter 5 as the little lamb slain. But this morning, we're coming to an all new section. We land at verse 1 of chapter 6, and it's a new day, it's a dark day, it's called the day of the Lord. The wrath of God revealed from heaven in the final years of this age, and that's what we're going to be spending quite a bit of time talking about, so buckle up and brace yourselves, that's where we're headed in the new year. Oh, not literally, I pray, but that's what's coming. The wrath of God revealed from heaven in the final years of this age. And get this, note this, please pay attention to this. It begins in chapter 6, not chapter 7, not chapter 8. The wrath begins in chapter 6. I will explain further on, maybe not this morning, why that's important to note. But also note this, that in chapter 6, as we open it up, as we read the very first verse, Jesus Jesus is not only the little lamb slain. He's called the little lamb again by John in verse 1 of chapter 6. But remember, in chapter 5, verse 5, He is also, as we sang earlier, the lion of the tribe of Judah. As old Jacob prophesied way back in Genesis 49, verse 9, he couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Or old Balaam, the seer, he prophesied in Numbers 24, verse 9, he couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who who curses you, Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is also called the Root of David. Note those two names. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10 says, In that day the nations will resort to the Root of Jesse, David's father. So we're going back a root. The root of David. David came from Jesus. Came from the line of Messiah. And in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5. The prophet said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land, and righteousness implies judgment. Right judging. Judging correctly. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord Our righteousness. That's another name for Jesus. What He will be called 
in the coming kingdom. Listen, get this, understand. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David are not just existential aliases. They're not just ways of of expressing something about the nature of Jesus. They are absolute declarations of His fundamental right to rule, to authority, and to judgment. You see, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, He has the power and the right to judge. As the root of David, He has the authority to judge. And these descriptions of the little lamb must not be forgotten. Don't ever forget that page for page, verse for verse, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as we come into chapter 6, people get all excited about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Actually, there are five, which I'll point out on Wednesday night. The horsemen of the apocalypse... Listen, these horsemen can do nothing without the consent of the Lamb, the Lion, the Root, Jesus Christ. He's the one in control. He is the one, we might say, pulling the strings or at least breaking the seals to open the scroll. This is all under the authority and the power and the consent of Jesus. And the wrath begins in chapter 6. Now... Because we've come to a new section, I want to give you some information I think is important to continuing on through our study in Revelation. Some terms and conditions. I'm sure some of you got something for Christmas that had terms and conditions with it. If it was a new phone or something, you had to sign off on the terms and conditions. Well, I want you to sign off on these this morning. Three things to note before we get into chapter 6. Number one... A series of shifting scenes. I don't know if you've picked this up already, but as we go through the book of Revelation, we bungee back and forth between earth and heaven. It's an up and down proposition. In the first three chapters, we're on earth with John there as he's receiving the revelation and talking about the church age. And then suddenly we're in heaven in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 6 takes place on earth. Verses 1 through 8. Uh, Verses 9 through 11, well, that takes place in heaven. Verse 12 through 17 takes place back on earth. Chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 6 takes place in heaven. Chapter 8, verse 7 through chapter 11, verse 14 takes place on earth. You get in the picture? 11, 15 through 12, 4 is in heaven. 12, 5 through 14, 20 is on earth. Chapter 15 is in heaven. Chapter 16 through 18 is on earth. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 is in heaven. Chapter 19, verses 11 through chapter 20, verse 10 is on earth. Chapter 20, verse 11 through verse 15 is in heaven. Did you write all this down? And chapters 21 and 22 are the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. So in the construction of the writing of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we begin on earth and we go to heaven, back to earth, to heaven, to earth, to heaven, to earth, to heaven, back and forth. And in both places and in both cases, Jesus Christ is the undeniable judge. He is the one with all authority. A shifting scene. So keep an eye on that. It's important to note as you're studying Revelation to know where you are. And as we open up chapter 6, we are back on earth as this chapter begins. The second thing to note, second term and condition. So what I would call a subsequent schedule. A subsequent schedule. That is, this is the after these things outline. We talk about the 
the things which you have seen John Jesus glorified, and the things which are the church age, and the things which will take place after these things, the outline that, remember, Jesus gave him, Revelation 1.19? The after these things picks up in chapter 4. And here's the outline for it. And you might want to jot this down or just go back and listen to it later if you need the outline. Revelation 4 and 5 is a prologue to the tribulation. We see the church in heaven. It's a a picture of the church having been caught up and there rejoicing the redeemed in heaven. And then we see the Lamb and he, He takes the scroll. He has the worth and the value and the right to do so. And He gets ready to break the seals. But all this is prologue in heaven to what's about to take place on earth after these things. Chapter 6, the tribulation begins. That time of judgment. It begins with what are called the seal judgments. There are three sets of judgments in Revelation. The first set is chapter 6, the seal judgments. And we'll be looking at those this morning and Wednesday night. When you get to chapter 7, that's non-chronological. That is, it's parenthetical. What does that mean? That it's not literal? No, it's literal. But it's kind of like when when an author is writing a story. If you've read like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or if you've read Star Wars or some of those books, they talk about something happening over in this place, and they talk about something happening concurrently over in this place. You just can't talk about it at the same time. So you'll talk about one, and then you go back and talk about the other next. Okay, So that's what we see a couple of places in Revelation. Chapter 7 is non-chronological in that what happens in chapter 7 is happening during chapter 6. So chapter 6 is what's happening on earth. Chapter 7 is what's happening in heaven, while what's happening on earth is happening on earth. Are you with me? Just nod or wipe the drool off your face. Whatever works for you. Chapters 8 and 9 in this outline, the Great Tribulation begins. The Bible is very explicit. The Tribulation speaks of the entire seven year period. The Great Tribulation speaks of the last three and a half years. The whole thing is Tribulation for the world. But the last three and a half years, it kicks into high gear with what Jesus termed as the Great Tribulation. And that begins the trumpet judgments, chapters 8 and 9. That's the second set of judgments. Chapters 10 through 15 are another non-chronological, parenthetical section that is put parentheses around it. This is information that's necessary and needed to understand what all is going on. And so we pause and we get this teaching that's not in the chronological order of the book because it's happening when other things are happening. Chapter 16 we get to the third set of judgments called the bowl judgments because they're poured out on the planet, the bowl judgments. Chapter 17 and 18, we get the fall of religious and commercial Babylon. Chapter 19 is Armageddon and the glorious return. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 is the millennial kingdom. Chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 is the great throne judgment. And chapters 21 and 22, the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And we head right on into eternity with Jesus. That's the outline. But Revelation 6 through 19 span seven years of tribulation, and that's the final term and condition you need to understand. And that is number three, a significant seven. 
A significant seven. A a series of shifting scenes, earth to heaven to earth to heaven, back and forth. A subsequent schedule, as we've just talked about, the schedule of the rest of the book. And finally, a significant seven. And I want to answer the question, if you're wondering, if you're uncertain about this, where do we get the idea that it's seven years for this tribulation? Now, Pastor Rick, I've heard you say that before. How do we know it's seven years? How can we be that precise? Well, because the Bible is. Now, you Bible students may already know this. I asked Cheryl about this earlier in the week, and I said, should I go over this again? And she said, absolutely go over it again. So we're going to go over it again. Turning your Bibles back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 in the Hebrew Scriptures. In verse 24, the angel Gabriel, who is God's messenger for things related to Israel, he is dispatched from heaven... He comes to Daniel, who has been praying fervently for three minutes. (laughs) The prayer he prays in Daniel chapter 9 takes about three minutes to pray. And in that time, Gabriel gets from heaven to earth and is actually standing there waiting for Daniel when he finishes praying. I love the scene. I see him tapping his foot. Okay, Daniel, say amen. Amen. Okay, good. I'm here for your answer. And he begins to explain to Daniel something that has been called the key to unlocking the revelation. And beginning in verse 24 of chapter 9, here's the key. Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks, which is a bad translation of the word. The word is, let me just tell you right now, Shabuah. And you might want to write that in your margin, Shabuah. The word is not weeks. It is Shabuah. It's a unit of seven. In English, we would call it a heptad. It's a unit of seven. Like we would say a dozen for a unit of twelve. So uh, a shabua is a unit of seven, a, a period of seven. Could be seven days, could be seven weeks, could be seven years, but it's a unit of seven. It's a shabua. Seventy shabua, or shabuim, because it's plural, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to bring atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. All that has to be accomplished in this time period of 70 Shabuah. And note that he is talking to Daniel, and this 70 Shabuah is for Daniel's people. Who's that? Who? It's Israel. This is specific to and for Israel. Keep that in mind. And so Gabriel says, So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, a very specific decree, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven Shavuah. And 62 Shavuah. That's broken up. It will be built again, that is Jerusalem, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And then after the 62 Shavuah, the Messiah will be cut off. The phrase cut off means killed. The Messiah will be killed and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, that is this prince of the people who destroy the city, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one Shabuah. 
one Shavuah. But in the middle of the Shavuah, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Very shadowy, very mysterious, especially when it was written down by Daniel. In fact, by the end of the, of the letter of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel, the Lord tells him, seal this up. It's not going to make sense right now. It's too mysterious. It's not, it, you don't have the context for it. Seal it up until the end of the age when it will make sense. Well, it makes perfect sense now. And we can understand what he's talking about. March 14th, 445 B.C. Artaxerxes made this decree. It's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1-8. through 8. It's recorded in history. Artaxerxes... Ruler of Persia gives Nehemiah the right to fully restore and rebuild Jerusalem, streets, walls, and all, and it happened in time of distress. Forty-nine years after that decree. So the decree is given, and then 49 years go by, which is the first seven Shavuim. The first seven sevens. Nehemiah finished the Jerusalem rebuild exactly as Daniel was told. So the decree is given and the job was done exactly seven sevens later, seven time periods of seven years. Seven times seven is 49. It was 49 years later. Well, then another 62 sevens went by. That's another 434 years. So from the decree, you go 49 years and then another 434 years for a total of 483 years or 69 sevens. Now that's, stay with me just for a moment, 173,880 days. Now you need to know that. Why? Why does that matter? Because we want to be precise. People are always talking about, oh, you know, the Scriptures are vague, or the Scriptures are contradictory, and they're not. They're absolutely precise. So we count these these sevens, okay? these, these periods of seven-year blocks, and we count this out from when the decree is given, and then we can look back and see what happened. Well, 49 years after the decree was given... The job was done, Jerusalem was rebuilt. 434 years go on beyond that. Now, we have to add it all up in number of days for this reason. we got to transfer from the lunar Jewish calendar to the solar Gregorian calendar. The Jewish calendar, 360 days a year. The Gregorian calendar, 365 days a year. So we got to make that transfer to see where we land in history. We also have to adjust for leap years. Again, we're being precise here. We don't want to miss this. When we make those very simple and precise calculations, the prophecy says Messiah must arrive on the scene April 6th, A.D. 32. What happened April 6th, A.D. 32? That same day, Jesus of Nazareth peacefully rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Messiah Arrived. Messiah was worshipped. He was lifted up. The prophecy said he would be. Daniel's also Zacharias, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What a weird prophecy. Messiah is coming and he's going to be riding a little donkey. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, He saw the city. He's riding in on the donkey. And He saw the city and He wept over it saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus enters Jerusalem and by the end of that week, after the 62 sevens, the Messiah was indeed cut off. Christ was crucified. 69 of the 77s have happened exactly as prophesied, with absolute pinpoint accuracy. 483 out of 490 years, how many sevens are left? One Shavuim. One Shavuah. There is one seven-year time period that's, that's unaccounted for here. He's crucified. And then if you read, well, what happens in the last seven? We'll read Daniel's prophecy again. And he says exactly what happens. And it's wild, incredible stuff. So we go back in history. Jesus was crucified. What happened in the seven years after His crucifixion? Nothing that was prophesied by Daniel. Well, you can say, well, that's a little disappointing. we got 483 years accounted for, and then seven years, nothing happens. That's for a very specific reason. When Jesus was crucified, everything stopped for Israel. Remember who the prophecy was for? The prophecies for Israel. But when Israel rejected Messiah, at that time, at that moment, God's prophetic clock stopped ticking. Jesus said in Luke 21-24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled and Jerusalem indeed has been conquered and reconquered 35 times. Trampled underfoot in these times of the Gentiles. My friends, what I'm telling you here is that seven years remain on hold for Israel. Seven years left. Now stay with me. Joel chapter 2 verse 15 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her chamber. If that's not a picture of the return of Jesus in the church, I don't know what is. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 says, Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But he will be saved out of it. Seven years left for Israel. Seven years, the time of Jacob's trouble. The day of the Lord running through those seven years. Now someone might ask, well wait a minute. But you've talked about this tribulation. Is it the time of Jacob's trouble or is it a time of judgment for the world? I thought this was global tribulation. I thought this was a worldwide judgment. Mark this down. And if you're a note taker, write this down. The tribulation is a summons and a sentence. It is a summons to the people of Israel. A summons for the Hebrew. It is a sentence for the heathen. 
He used the word heathen. It just means someone who doesn't believe in God. A summons for Israel in this final seven year period and a sentence for the world. A national wake up, if you will, for the Jewish people. A global shake up for the world. Israel will end up restored all the while God's wrath is outpoured. And it will last seven years. Based on Daniel's prophecy, we have a seven-year time period that is left. That seven-year time period will begin, will start ticking when this false prince of peace makes a covenant, as Daniel says, with the many. When that covenant is signed, the clock will start ticking again and will tick down seven years. And that's it. That seven years is the tribulation. That's what's described in Revelation 6 through 18. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And the elect is Israel, the chosen people of God. Revelation chapter 6. Now go back there. Revelation chapter 6 describes the first three and a half years of the seven. We get it all in one chapter, the first three and a half years. Note that, it's important. Chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, and we will get there, I'm just putting it out ahead of time. Chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, calculates the first half of the tribulation, which we see described in chapter 6 as 42 months. Add it up, it's three and a half years. It also uses the phrase or the number... 1,260 days. Again, three and a half years. It's absolutely precise. Revelation chapter 6, the tribulation, first three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. And as we will see before I'm done in about three hours this morning, it's clearly called the wrath of the Lamb. This is the wrath of the Lamb. Tribulation begins in chapter 6. Now, in Revelation chapters 8 and 9 and 16, the final three and a half years are detailed. Three and a half plus three and a half is seven. You're with me. I know I'm I'm blowing you away with my math skills this morning. (laughs) Revelation 8 and 9 and 16, the last three and a half years, again, what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And Revelation 12 verse 14, I'll point it out to you when we get there, quantifies the last three and a half years as, note this, a time, times, and half a time. I can't do a half finger there, but you know what I'm saying here. A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. You have the first three and a half years in chapter 6. Chapters 8, 9, and 16, the last three and a half years. 42 months or 1260 days, the first three and a half years. A time, times, and half a time, the last three and a half years. Seven years. That's how we know the tribulation will last seven years. There's a little math involved, but it's not rocket science. It's just taking the Bible literally. Now, are you with me? Accepting these terms and conditions, we can go forward. Let's begin our study for this morning, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw... When the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come, or come and see. Come and see. 
When does this happen? Revelation chapter 6. When does this tribulation get underway? Please understand, it's not when the church is raptured. It's when the false covenant is signed. That begins the seven-year time period. Now, I think it's going to be very, very close. I think the church will be called up, and very quickly, days, months, perhaps in the first year, but the church is out, and the world is in turmoil, and everybody's trying to figure out what to do, and the man of peace will rise. And he'll bring a perfect solution that's going to make everybody happy, and everybody's going to sign off on it. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we've already seen how quickly people follow what they think is a Savior, who they think is a Messiah. We've seen false messiahs for 2,000 years. But we see people rally behind a person. This, this, this is the one. He can do it. She can do it. We say, and we line up and say, yes, this, this president is going to make all the difference. People said that about Obama. People said that about Trump. Now the difference will happen. Now we're going to get what we want. Now we're going to get what we deserve. And we usually do. But note this. In verse 1, who breaks the seal? The Lamb. The Lamb is in control. Don't misunderstand. When we talk about the little lamb slain, Jesus is the lamb. You might be tempted to think, well, He's a lamb, and lambs are docile. Or He's a little lamb slain, so He's dead. Docile or dead, either way, what kind of threat, what kind of danger can He be? I can assure you, Jesus is very much alive, and He will release His wrath in the first half of the tribulation. It is the wrath It is the judgment of the Lamb. Why? What is Jesus judging? Sin? Evil? Rebellion? How about injustice? Let me just get a show of hands. How many of you are completely satisfied with the state of the world in which we live? (laughs) How many of you think that things are good and they can only get better? Are the governments functioning well? (coughs) Shut down. (laughs) Things in Syria are calming down? My friends, this world is in a heap of trouble. And people around our world are troubled. You ever get troubled? Looking at what's going on? You realize right now, prophetically, What's happening in Syria is lining up for Ezekiel 38. You prophecy students will know what I'm talking about. The major players in Syria, Iran, Russia, Turkey. And look at our own government. Talk about war. We see a government divided at war with itself. We'll talk about that more on Wednesday night. But Jesus is ready to judge all these things, and I say rightly so. Because true love demands justice. What about the two migrant children who died in U.S. custody in the past month on the southern border? Forget your politics for just a minute and realize two children died 
Well, whose fault was it? Well, that's the first question that comes out of Congress, right? Investigations are already underway. Dems in Congress blame the President and his policies, and of course he blames the Democrats. And they war with each other, and reviews are going on. But my question is not who caused it. I would actually look further back. I would say, what parent would bring their child to the border like that? That's just my personal opinion. Regardless, who's going to make that right? Two children, dead. Who's going to fix it? Who's going to make justice out of that injustice? What about this? Who's going to make right the 50 million children aborted in America since 1973? 50 million. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Don't be surprised that the tribulation begins in chapter 6 with the Lamb breaking the seals and releasing wrath on the world. If someone broke into your home tonight and brutalized or violated or murdered your family, would you not cry for justice? I want it made right. And it doesn't matter your politics or your religion It doesn't matter your upbringing. All humanity cries for justice. We all want it made right. Our way. (laughs) Because my way is right. Now there's only one way that's right, and that's God's way. Because He alone is righteous. And He will make right. Why? Because God is love. And love must be just. In the same way that we would want justice for anyone harmed who we love, Jesus commands and demands justice. So with the breaking of the first seal, the tribulation begins, and a seal at a time, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, unleashes His wrath. It's a wild way to look at it, but it truly is the wrath of the little Lamb. John is still using that word for Lamb, Archeon, the little Lamb. The wrath of the little Lamb. But get this, the breaking of the first six seals of the seven on this scroll will result in a massive loss of life. Skip down and look at verse 8. The last part of the verse says, Authority was given to them, right in the middle of verse 8, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence. Now, a fourth of the earth... Right now, and I looked it up, the world population clock, this was yesterday, so there are more on here, but it was ticking in at 7.638 billion people on the planet. The UN estimates that 11 billion people will inhabit the planet by 2021. So just a couple of years off, 11 billion now, of that number, 11 billion, or let's, you know, if you want to be more conservative, go 7 to 11 billion in there. Christians right now on the planet, which includes Catholic, Protestant, and Eastern Orthodox. So we're taking the broadest definition of Christian that we can. That accounts for 2.3 billion people. But you've got to recognize that Revelation 2 and 3 makes something clear that there are some who are sound asleep. There are others who ignore Jesus knocking on the door. Still others will be, as he says, thrown into great tribulation. These are Christians in name only, not Christian by heart. Not those who actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But, but, even if we were to say that God removed two billion Christians in the rapture of the church, that would still leave six to eleven, depending on the timing of all this, six to eleven billion more people here. And a fourth of that, note this number, is 1.5 to 2.5 billion people dead in three and a half years. That's a big number. So let me make it a little more clear for you. World War II boasts the greatest number of casualties in history, estimated at approximately, conservatively, 50 million people. 50 million killed across a span of just over seven years. 50 million. Some estimate closer to 100 million. So let's give it to them. Let's be liberal for a moment and say, 100 million people were killed across seven years of World War II. Three and a half years some 2 billion people will be dead. Why? Because the Lamb is breaking the seals. Do you understand the wrath of the Lamb a little better? Isaiah 66, verse 16 says, The Lord will execute judgment by fire and by His sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. It is not the way He wants it. It's the way it will be. Because of rebellion, because of sin, because of injustice. But it all begins with a cold, calculated peace. Verse 2. I looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering. And to conquer, let's be very clear, this is not Christ. There are those who say, well, he's riding a white horse, so that has to be Jesus. And it throws everything into disarray in terms of the chronology of Revelation. It simply doesn't make sense that it would be Jesus riding in on this white horse. This is not Jesus Christ. This is Antichrist. This is a counterfeit. This is the prince of the people who destroy the holy city in Daniel chapter 9. Sometimes called the coming prince. Why is he the prince of the people who destroy the city? Who are the people that destroyed the city in A.D. 70? Rome. This prince is connected in some way to Rome. Comes out of Eastern Europe. Let's just put it that way. He is of that lineage, of those people. Those are his people. And this prince will come, but he's a false prince of peace. And he comes on the scene, this Antichrist... To make a covenant of peace. And that's what we see at the very beginning of chapter 6. He comes in riding on a white horse. Man, get him up on that white steed. Here he comes, Prince of Peace. He has a bow and a crown. And he went out conquering and to conquer. But this is a Cold War peace. It's a delusional peace. Antichrist will be a peace-preaching, silver-tongued, dynamic world leader. People will listen. Again, we have seen this happen over and over. We have watched world leaders and presidents and kings rise and people flock to them. I was thinking just this last week about about, uh, Francis Macron and how popular he was and how much they hate him now. That's what happens. Everybody calls out, here's the guy who can lead us, and here's the guy who has all the answers, but it doesn't take long before we realize he's just another guy. I don't understand it, but humanity keeps putting faith in humanity. 
We keep looking for another human being to lead us out of this mess. Well, guess who got us into this mess? Human beings. And so we misplace our trust. And Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Now, in the Revelation, we will learn more of Antichrist. In fact, in chapter 13, we'll get a complete detail and we'll talk about him in detail later on. Understanding more of his character and his campaign. But you might ask the question, wait a minute though, if he rides the white horse, doesn't Jesus? I read ahead, Rick. I looked at chapter 19. And I saw Jesus riding in with a white horse. So this one comes riding in a white horse. Yeah, but where's Jesus? Where's the Lamb? He's breaking the seals. He breaks the seal that releases this white horse rider. Why a white horse? Because he looks the part. He is anti-Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean against. We've talked about this. It means another Christ. One in the place of Christ. Anti-Christos. A counterfeit Christ. And before we finish this morning, quickly, I'm going to give you four things to notice out of verse 2. Number one, he holds a bow. He holds a bow. No arrows, no spear, no sword. He holds a bow. A bow which is a symbol of a false covenant. Or a symbol of a covenant. In this case, a false covenant. Well, where do you get that, Rick? Well, the word bow in the Greek is toxon. The root of toxon is tikto. You don't have to write that down, but it simply means to bring forth, to bear, to bring as in a covenant. And the first time the equivalent word is used in the Bible is Genesis chapter 9, where God makes a covenant with Noah and all mankind and sets his bow in the heavens. So here comes this rider on a white horse, and he's got a bow. Daniel 9.27 again says, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one Shabuah. One seven year. Let's make a seven year peace treaty and everybody's going to be happy. Everybody's going to get what they want. The Jews will get what they want. And the Muslims will get what they want. And we'll talk about that later on. Those warring in the Middle East and all the tensions, this is going to get solved. Everybody's going to be happy. All you got to do is sign on the dotted line and we'll stretch this out for seven years because that's what politicians do. They kick it down the road. And so Antichrist is going to set this up. He holds a bow. Proof of the covenant of God originally was a bow. But listen, unless the covenant is a covenant made by God, be careful. You see, we human beings have a hard time keeping our covenants. We have a hard time maintaining our treaties. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.33, you've heard it said that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Unless you have Grecian formula. But that's not what he's talking about. (laughs) But let your statement, Jesus says, be yes, yes, 
or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. Because anything, I mean, you've, you've watched the news, you've seen this happen. They say, do you intend to do this? When does a politician ever answer yes or no? They don't. They go on about and talk around it, and what you know, and and, and they just lead you down this primrose path. <laughs> Jesus says, just say yes and mean it, or say no and mean it, and keep your word. And the problem in the world is that Israel right now is waiting for Mashiach to come. Waiting for someone who will solve the problem. So Antichrist comes riding in with covenant in hand and they will be deceived temporarily. The many will sign off. By the way, do you know who else is waiting for a man of peace to come? Muslims are. Some of you have studied this. They await the Mahdi, the 12th Imam. Buddhists are waiting for Maitreya. Hindus are waiting for Kalki. The Taoist looks for Li Hong. Christian scientists are still waiting for the return of L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> you know, i got to tell you, if I was going to start a religion, I would change my name. I wouldn't be L. Ron Hubbard or the right Reverend Rick Crawford. You know, it, come up with something better, you know. On the other hand, there are many people in the world who wait for no one at all. In September, former President Barack Obama on the campaign trail for the Democrats said, and I quote, You can't sit back and wait for a Savior. We don't need a Messiah, he said. All we need are decent, honest, hardworking people who are accountable and have America's best interests at heart. Really? If that's true then why hasn't 6,000 years of civilization produced such decency and honesty? Why isn't the world a better place than it's ever been? If all we need are decent and honest people, we don't need a Messiah. Boy, this world needs Messiah. But we need the Messiah. We need the Righteous One. We need the Lamb that was slain, the Root of David, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, the world, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, is more deceitful than all else. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand that? And again, you Bible students, you've heard that verse. We know the heart is sick. So again, I ask, why do people keep looking for another flawed human being to set things right? Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Let no one in any way deceive you. For the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, another name for Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And that's the break point. That's three and a half years into the tribulation. And when he takes his seat in the temple and declares himself to be God, God's wrath is poured out and the great tribulation begins. Antichrist is going to come on the scene. But he's going to come first with this peace plan, riding in on a white horse, holding a a bow, a covenant, 
Daniel 9.27, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one Shavuah, one seven, and in the middle of the week, in the middle, He'll put a stop to it. And the bow is a lie. And by the way, so is the crown. He not only bears a bow, but He wears a crown. Now you might say, okay, but I read Revelation 19, and Jesus wears a crown. Actually, Revelation 19, verse 12, Jesus wears many crowns. And they're called diadems, golden crowns of authority and rule and honor. The crown that Antichrist wears here, a crown was given him, is that leafy crown, the Stephanos. It's not the same crown, because this is not the same one on a white horse. This is the Stephanos, the crown of the victor, and by the way, this Stephanos isn't even gold. Remember what the church gets? I'm going to give you a crown. The crown of life. The the ones that Jesus gives to those who overcome are gold crowns. This isn't even gold. This is just a leafy crown. It'll wilt. (laughs) It's temporary. It'll last about three and a half years. And then it's going to start to look a little shabby. And not be what people thought it was going to be. He bears a bow, he wears a crown, and he rides, note this, conquering and to conquer, which is a revelation of his true intentions. He's going in to fight. He's going in to conquer people. Daniel chapter 8, verse 24, speaking of Antichrist, says, His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy, it will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform and he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. He's a legend in his own mind. <laughs> and he will destroy many while at ease. That's those who are saying peace, peace. He will even oppose the prince of princes. That is Jesus. But he will be broken without human agency. Or listen to the comparison that Jesus makes. Because you know Jesus talked about Antichrist. Jesus called him out. John chapter 5 verse 41. Jesus said, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And that's Antichrist. Last thing about this writer. He bears a bow. He wears a crown. He rides conquering and to conquer. But note that he rides, number four, with a gang of violent vigilantes. When he broke the second seal, verse three, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. That's the rider of war. He broke the third seal. And I heard, and the third living creature uh, saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and, and wine, and that's famine. And I'll explain why on Wednesday night. 
And when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And note this, he who sat on it had the name Death. There's the fourth rider. And Hades, the fifth rider, was following with him. So it's not four horsemen of the apocalypse, it's five, because you got death and Hades. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, as we noted, to kill with the sword and with famine and pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Listen, this is the team. The white horse rider teams up with these deputies of disaster, war, famine, death, and Hades. And all of this takes place in the first three and a half years before Antichrist violates the covenant midway through. Antichrist holds a bow. He holds a covenant. But he does not hold the scroll. Only one has the right to do that, to break the seals. This is the wrath of the Lamb. By the way, how does the world respond to all of this? These first eight verses of the wrath unleashed of the Lamb, what does the world do in response? Verse 9 says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. In other words, martyrdom is the world's response. Kill the people of God is the answer to when justice begins to be meted out on the earth. And so the fifth seal reveals a backlash of martyrdom against those who do receive Christ in the first half of the tribulation. That's not the church. Church was caught up. Church is in heaven, chapters 4 and 5. But there are those who come to Jesus in faith in massive number as Revelation 7 will prove to us. But they will die for it. They will lose their life for it. And watch what happens when the sixth seal is broken and the world becomes a terrifying place. I looked when He broke the sixth seal. Verse 12, And there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth and as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the... What? The Lamb. It's the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? My friends, this is just the first half of the tribulation. Quickly, chapter 6 covers these things. The Hebrew pastor said in Hebrews 10.26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, that is the little lamb slain, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. That's the message we have for the new year. 
That is the message as we open chapter 6. God is a righteous judge. Jesus must and will judge. And by the way, in contrast to the writers of war and famine and death and Hades, who saddles up to follow Jesus? You know the answer. Revelation 19, 7 and 8, we see the bride dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Revelation 11 through 14, here comes Jesus wearing His many diadems, riding His white horse, coming out of the heavens and following Him, the bride in army boots. Fine linen, white and clean come the army following Jesus. And it is, I believe, the saints, the church, coming back with Him. Now listen to this. If you don't follow Jesus Christ, you will follow Antichrist. I mean, it is as simple as that. And I'm not just talking about in days to come. I'm talking about right now. If you don't follow Jesus Christ, you are following another Christ. That Christ may not be the actual, literal man of lawlessness, the Antichrist to come, but if you're following anything other than Jesus, you're following another Christ, a false Christ, a false peace. John, who knew about Antichrist, who knew that this man of lawlessness would rise, John wrote in 1 John 2.18, Children, it's the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. People are following saviors right and left. And sometimes those saviors are politicians. And sometimes those saviors are our own work ethic. Sometimes those saviors are our great investments. Sometimes those saviors are other people who can get us through. A loved one, a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. He's the right one. Oh, he's just so perfect. No, he's not. (laughs) You will find that out. And we're not looking for Antichrist. That's the thing. When we get into chapter 6 and beyond, we're beyond ourselves. We're into the after these things. We're not here. Chapter 6 through 19, at least the the beginning of 19, don't apply to followers of Jesus Christ. We're going to study them and know them because they're here and there's reason for it. I believe it's really going to be studied heavily in the first three and a half years of the tribulation because it's going to be available then too, you know. But if we don't follow Jesus Christ, we follow Antichrist. Any other Christ, any other Savior, any other hope will only bring you false peace. Which is what Antichrist is all about. False peace. I don't have a Happy New Year's message for you. I have a message of judgment. It's Jesus who said in John 3.19, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. But Jesus also said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Listen, as messed up as things are, my heart is not troubled. 
I'm not worried. I'm not fretting about government shutdowns or Syria or personal issues. God's got it. We have no reason to be troubled because Jesus says, My peace I leave with you. That's real peace. And it's peace right now, today. And it's peace for all eternity. The peace of Jesus Christ. When it all comes down, and it will, listen to what the world leaders again will be saying in verses 16 and 17. They cry out, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath, that is Father and Son, their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? And I will tell you this morning that the way out of terrifying judgment and into peace is not to hide from the Lamb, but to hide in the Lamb. To put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust Him now. Trust Him for life. And He will be for you the little Lamb slain for the forgiveness of your sin. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is sobering. And yet, true. Your Word, Father, it's profound. We see all of these things as they begin to piece together and the puzzle forms and we look and we recognize what is coming upon this world. We recognize what You have determined to do, even to restore Your people Israel as You pour out judgment and wrath on this planet for all the sin and wickedness and evil and injustice and harm and damage that has been done by humanity. Lord, You have promised all the way back to the very beginning that You would judge. We see in almost one of the earliest instances with humanity, You judged the sin choice of Adam and Eve. Father, I am so thankful that Your judgments are righteous and true. So thankful that You are going to make all things right. Because I have found in my life, Father, that I can't. I found in times that I have tried to make things right that are wrong. I can't do it. It can be so frustrating to try and make peace, Lord, when I don't have the power to make peace. But You have promised to do this. And Father, my prayer to You this morning is very simply this. If there is anyone among us today who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit, will You convict that person's heart so that today, without walking out of here, he or she will make a decision for Jesus Christ. will decide to follow the true Christ. It's the only way we can know peace, Father. And I pray for peace to fall in this place by Your Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.